Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, in 1972, a young man named Harry Walker was killed by a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park. A subsequent wrongful death trial focused on whether the National Park Service had done enough to prevent human interaction with bears. The story puzzled and fascinated former park ranger Jordan Fisher-Smith. In it, he found myriad issues of what it means to manage nature. The National Park Service turned 100 last week. The anniversary was marked by celebration and glowing commentary. We love our parks and their legacy of conservation. But do we take for granted that parks preserve and protect nature? Jordan Fisher-Smith's latest book is Engineering Eden, The True Story of a Violent Death, a Trial, and the Fight Over Controlling Nature. He spoke at the Elliott Bay Book Company on August 17th. So good evening, all, and thank you so much for coming out this evening. It's my uh, pleasure to welcome with us this evening Jordan Fisher-Smith with his new book, Engineering Eden, The True Story of a Violent Death, a Trial, and the Fight Over Controlling Nature. He's also the author of Nature Noir, and his writing has appeared in such um, publications as Men's Journal, Los Angeles Times Magazine, among others. Um, In addition to that, he was a park and wilderness ranger for 21 years in California, Wyoming, Idaho, and Alaska. Um, He'll be reading this evening. I'm sure he'll be happy to uh, take your questions. Um, And then afterwards, uh, books will be for sale at the back of the room, and uh, he'll be back there to sign uh, your book for you. Um, We are recording with uh, KUOW this evening, so um, you can look forward to hearing that on the radio sometime in the near future, I'm sure. So please join me in welcoming Jordan Fisher-Smith. You know, uh, Elliott Bay Book Company is sort of like um, Tokyo Bay or San Francisco Bay, and the um, the authors who are on the road, like I am, talk about these places. Have you been there yet? Uh, When are you going there? And they're like ports in the storm, you know. And uh, many nights a week. Somebody like me who's traveling is here. And this is a most amazing cultural institution to have in your city. To some extent, many cities that still have pretty good art museums don't have bookstores like this. And um, I hope that you who live here feel uh, as lucky as I think you are to have Elliott Bay Books. And also thanks to uh, KUOW for being here tonight in recording this. When we uh, break nature or we damage nature, um, how do we fix it? Um, I suppose first we turn our phones off. In the process, how much should we respect, how much should we respect nature's autonomy? How much should we try to manipulate and control nature in order to save it or repair it after we've broken it? Uh, Do we know enough, really, about nature and ecology to do it? What happens if we get it wrong? Um, These are the questions I've been thinking about now for um, about a a decade, and... um, there are some stories that come to, to a writer and refuse to be sent away. And the story I'm going to tell you about and tell you a little bit of tonight in Engineering Eden is one of those. It simply refused not to be written. It came to me in dribs and drabs over a period of years, um, and I slowly assembled it. In 2009... I was working on on these questions um, that I've just mentioned uh, and working on an article for Discover Magazine. And I was in the archives of Yellowstone National Park, which are particularly fine. Um, Yellowstone, the flagship, uh, the sort of um, oldest, first national park in the world, also has one of the most beautiful um, and and well-tended archives of its own history. 
Uh, and I was in the archives um, in Gardner, Montana, and I sort of stumbled across these cardboard boxes containing 1,745 pages of trial transcripts from a forgotten lawsuit in, that went to court in 1975 in Los Angeles. As I began paging through, as I began paging through the, uh, the transcripts, I found that uh, two of the greatest wildlife biologists of the 20th century um, were testifying against each other in this trial. And it was all about, the trial was all about um, how, do we, how do we fix nature and make it natural again? Um, and what happens if we get it wrong and somebody gets killed? In this case, um, the, the person who got killed was a 25-year-old farmer from Alabama who had left home in a state of, um, he was in one of those times in life where he was a fork in the road, where he um, was uh, trying to figure out uh, what the next stage of his life was going to be. He, he was troubled by some things. Um, he had been in the National Guard, and it was... Uh, it was 1972, two years after Kent State, and suddenly being in the National Guard wasn't all that popular anymore. Uh, and um, so he uh, asked his father for t a little time off from the farm, and he left home hitchhiking and went on the Great American Road Trip. He arrived in Yellowstone National Park in another centennial. We're having a centennial this year of the national parks. This was the centennial of the first national park in the world, which was actually designated in 1872, really early. Um, that's four years before Custer's last stand. Um, you know, the final mop-up operations of the Indian Wars are going on around the park as it's created. Um, some people call that a genocide. Um, and... Uh, uh, and he arrives in the middle of the festivities celebrating the 100th anniversary of the park. Um, and a few hours after the dedication of the new visitor center at Old Faithful and within view of the building almost, he is dragged away into the woods screaming and partly eaten by a grizzly bear. Um, an environmental activist who's trying to save the, uh, the grizzlies from extinction south of Canada, and at that point they are very much uh, threatened with it, uh, convinces his parents in Alabama to sue the federal government uh, on the grounds that the federal government had been conducting a modification of the behavior of bears, trying to force bears back to naturalness, uh, and trying to do another, um, a couple of other things in the park to force the park back to naturalness. Uh, and the, the, the foundation of the suit was that this uh, operation was carried out on a faulty uh, philosophy that the best way to get something to be natural again is just to leave it alone. Um, the, the plaintiffs uh, claimed that this had resulted in, uh, in one of these bears uh, killing Harry Walker. These people, uh, the Alabama farmers, um, who lodged this uh, suit against the federal government, had never so much as contested a traffic ticket. They had no idea what they were in for. They didn't know any lawyers. They'd never talked to a lawyer. Um, and this was the beginning of a six-year odyssey for them that ended with the loss of their farm eventually, and they went out of business. Uh, this is also the story of a, a pair of researchers who took on the National Park Service uh, over its philosophy about making the park natural again. And for their trouble, um, the Park Service sent a bulldozer uh, to push down their lab um, and eventually uh, cut their radio collars off the grizzly bears and forced them out of the park. Um, and I should say that when I talk about the Park Service, the Park Service is an old institution that's been with us now for 100 years. And the Park Service I'm talking about is very much the Park Service of 1972 or 1970. And uh, I'll talk about that later. But I, I don't want to confuse the Park Service we're talking about here with today's Park Service. Uh, however, the issues at stake are very much the ones that we're facing now. 
if you break nature, how do you fix it? How much do you respect nature's autonomy and stand back and let it sort itself out? How much do you reach in? And truly, what, what is natural and what's, and what's not natural? And is anything natural anymore? Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I heard a, a moment ago that I would be reading. And, you know, uh, usually when I do these talks, I, uh, I read a little bit, but I talk a lot. And it, it, even before that was said, I, it occurred to me that I might read a little bit tonight from this book which I don't usually do longer sections of. Um, uh, would, you, would you like that? Do you like when authors read? It certainly works on the radio. Uh, I'm going to read to you a little bit of Engineering Eden. And in this scene, um, Harry Walker is, is still at home in Alabama. Uh, and it looks like he'll be just living his father's life forever. Um, he's, he's, he's going to be taking over the farm. Uh, life will be as it's always been in, in, in dairying in Alabama. And he hasn't reached this, this crisis yet where he's leaving home. Uh, the, uh, the problems in Yellowstone, Yellowstone's uh, ecology is, is out of balance at this point. Uh, in fact, in this book you'll see that a number of, of the, na- the great national parks ecologies were out of balance, the national parks became a physical manifestation of our ideas uh, about what nature was and how it worked. And the oldest ones became a sort of sequential manifestation. There were layers of policy on policy on policy as we learned about nature. Keep in mind that when Yellowstone was created in 1872, there was no science of ecology yet. It didn't, uh, there was no professional association for ecologists. There was no uh, teaching ecology as a distinct field in universities. That really didn't happen until, uh, you know, there were ecologists by the 1890s. Uh, There was a professional association by the time of the First World War. But this is a civilization that did something very bold to create a a two million acre reserve. of, of, uh, of country that hadn't really been damaged all that much yet. And at the same time, they had no idea how to do it. Once they had drawn a line around it, they really, nobody had ever done anything like this before. And their ecological knowledge was typical of their time. So uh, from the very beginning, uh, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Sequoia National Park, Glacier National Park became manifestations of our learning process about nature. And if you know what to look for and you go to uh, Yellowstone, you can still see these uh, old policies written on the landscape. Uh, and uh, this is true for the other parks as well. So uh, in, in this uh, chapter that I'm going to read, uh, there's a lot of trouble also with elk. In Yellowstone, uh, one as was typical at the time, they killed off all the predators. Uh, they, they killed uh, every last wolf by 1926. Uh, they killed off, it looks like they killed off all the cougars, at least no one saw one for many decades in the park. The grizzly bears were saved because people found them interesting and fun to look at. Um, but uh, largely this was a park where ungulates like... Um, deer and elk were allowed to, um, uh, the population was allowed to grow. And by the time I'm writing about here, uh, this had caused some serious problems. They, the park looked very moth-eaten. Whole forests of uh, aspens were refusing to, uh, to reproduce. There weren't any seedlings because the, uh, uh, the uh, elk were eating off everything that came up out of the ground in the winter when they were really hungry. Uh, and so the Park Service had, by 1934, taken to shooting elk by the thousands in Yellowstone. They'd have these great um, herd uh, drives and drive them into corrals and then shoot them. Uh, and uh, so you'll, you'll meet uh, this ranger who later investigates the uh, death of uh, Harry Walker. 
Uh, and the first thing we see him doing in the park is herding elk into corrals. By this time, they're being uh, uh, trucked away and given away because somebody's objecting to, to shooting them. And uh, with the problems with bears, by, by the 1890s, bears were feeding at every garbage pit uh, around the hotels in Yellowstone. First black bears and then grizzlies. Um, there were people feeding bears. Almost as soon as there were tourists in the park, the activity of feeding bears became an expected part of going to a national park. And so this was a powerful way of modifying the behavior of bears, which are smart creatures, to uh, lose their um, reticence to come close to people. And as they came close to people, uh, there were increasing problems. With black bears, which weren't predatory, um, they merely would get pushy and push somebody over or claw them if they wanted food. And uh, with grizzly bears, which mostly stayed away from people but fed at the garbage dumps, uh, they would occasionally take people. They'd get close to people. And, uh, and, and what began to happen was uh, very scary things with grizzlies. Chapter 21, Firehole. By 1970, Harry Walker had become a familiar face in the smokehouse, a brick-fronted billiards hall with front windows looking out on the main business district of Anniston, half a block from the white marble courthouse where Assistant U.S. Attorney Spivak later took depositions from the Alabama witnesses in the lawsuit over his death. He was a grown man now, 23, 6 foot 1, long and lean, all muscle and gristle, with a ready smile that showed his big, even white teeth. He dressed in blue jeans, tight white T-shirts that his mother kept bleached and plaid, sh and plaid shirts. He liked to sh shoot pool, and the smokehouse was also part of a whole mosaic of side jobs he cobbled together for extra income. He was collecting the money from the players and racking up the balls and working for the owner there. Although he worked long hours on his father's farm, the dairy didn't clear enough to pay him a full salary. So in addition to the smokehouse, at various times, Harry worked on the night shift at the pipe foundry, spent a couple of weeks on an oil rig off the Gulf Coast, and crewed aboard a shrimp boat out of Mobile. Based on his experiences with farm machines, the National Guard trained him as a heavy equipment operator, and he brokered his skill into yet another job running a backhoe for an Anniston construction company. When the mail carrier on the Walker's rural route was looking for a substitute for vacations and sick days, he asked Harry. Harry applied, and he got that job, too. Harry's life was laid out before him. Like the cows that had worn their habitual trails in the red clay from the lower pasture to the milking barn, Harry would mark the hours of his life treading the same paths his daddy did, at least for now. And at least for now, he would have to work those other jobs as well. At Yellowstone that spring of 1970, a newly promoted 30-year-old sub-district ranger was sent down from Mammoth Hot Springs to take over the day-to-day -day operations of Old Faithful Village. Hot Spring, I'm sorry. Jim Brady was not a big man, but he had played college football, and he exuded physical confidence. His manner was thoughtful, polite, and deferential. He had a way of making people feel like, he had, like they had his total attention when they talked to him. And among his subordinates, he had a reputation for being preternaturally cool in emergencies. Brady had grown up in San Bernardino, where the smog drifting east from Los Angeles met the dust and tumbleweeds of the Mojave Desert. His father was a brakeman for the Santa Fe Railroad there. And when Brady was 14, his old man was hit by a train and put out of work. As the family slipped into poverty, Brady discovered football, which, which earned him an athletic scholarship to Humboldt State University in the coastal rainforests of Northern California. In addition to lumber mills and muddy scrimmages, Humboldt was known for turning out foresters and wildlife biologists. Brady majored in botany and zoology and married his high school sweetheart. By the time he graduated in 1962, he was working as a seasonal park ranger and very much wanted to be a permanent one. 
That summer, his wife gave birth to their first child at Yellowstone National Park. Brady's specialty within the Park Service, as opposed to a scientist such as Glenn Cole or a ranger naturalist like Lloyd Parrott, whose job was to give out information to visitors and teach people about nature, was to make sure the coming and going of millions of visitors went smoothly and to see to it that they went home in one piece. In the early 1960s, when Brady came on the scene, the Park Service was diversifying its traditional fare of awe-inspiring scenery with new parks where the emphasis was on pure outdoor recreation. Brady got his first permanent job in 1963 at one of these, Lake Mead, the reservoir formed by the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River just outside of Las Vegas. Lake Mead National Recreation Area was a 24-hour bacchanal of alcohol, high-powered boats, firearms, and assorted other weapons. It was a gladiator school for young, ranger, uh, young law enforcement rangers. By the time he transferred back to Yellowstone in November of 1967, Brady had been shot at three times. About the first thing they found for him to do when he got back to Yellowstone was to fly around the Lamar Valley as an observer in a helicopter, chasing elk through the snow into winged fences and corrals that were by then referred to not so affectionately as McGee traps. After the beating the Park Service had taken in Senator McGee's hearings that March, they weren't shooting any elk, and as Glenn Cole implemented the natural control program, it was the last time they would give them away. 984 of them that winter. I should say that Cole believed that the best way to make something natural again was to leave it alone. And the opposition, uh, and in this case it was John and Frank Craighead, the grizzly researchers, said that no, once things are out of kilter, you may have to manipulate them back into shape in order for something that resembled resembled naturalness to happen. Uh, And this was the great fight in this book. Um, how do you get nature to get back to what it would be had you not messed with it? From the helicopter beneath a ceiling of snow clouds, the Lamar Valley was a study in blue, gray, and black, and orange where a shaft of low sun stole under the weather to light a distant peak. It had been snowing, and the icy wind had blown powder off the ridges and into the gullies and low spots where it settled in hundreds of parallel paths that generations of elk had engraved into the mountainsides in their desperate search for sustenance. The elk trail stood out as white lines across the stony slopes, like the contours of a topographic map. The helicopter shook as the pilots swooped back and forth, herding strings of elk through the deep snow in the gullies. After the mayhem in Las Vegas, for Brady, it was like coming home. And from the tiny bubble-canopied craft, the immensity of the valley and the white elk paths were beautiful, and it all looked convincingly like wilderness. Brady made a good account of himself in 1968 and 1969 in the North District at Mammoth Hot Springs, and in 1970, he was made the Old Faithful Subdistrict Ranger. Old Faithful Village is located on the Grand Loop Road in the Valley of the Firehole River in the western part of Yellowstone. The meadows surrounding it are bounded on the east by the timbered ridges of Observation Point and on the west by the dark lava bluffs at the western edge of the Madison Plateau. In those days, the village contained some 400 buildings, the greater number of them tiny brown-painted guest cabins and other small structures. The ruling presences were two large historic hotels on the north end, facing a semicircular plank causeway around an aperture from which, at intervals of just over an hour, the old faithful geyser erupted over 100 feet in the air. Beyond the geyser, paths and boardwalks extended north into the upper geyser basin and up the rounded white slope of Geyser Hill. The hill and the valley in the distance were dotted with clouds of steam rising from geysers and hot pools. The Grand Loop Road had been constructed by Army engineers in the early days as a dirt wagon track. 
By 1970, it was a 142-mile strip of asphalt, 22 feet wide, connecting Old Faithful to the other clusters of hotels and cabins, stores, cafes, visitor centers, marinas, and campgrounds in the park. These features constituted less than 5% of Yellowstone's total area, but absorbed over 95% of the ranger's energy. A, product, a project to divert the road around Old Faithful Village was completed for the centennial summer of 1972. But when Jim Brady took over in 1970, on an average summer day, between 11 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon, from 600 to 800 cars, trucks, buses, motorhomes rolled right through the village. At intervals of about 65 minutes, when the geyser went off, Drivers of passing cars would stop in the middle of the road, everyone would pile out with their cameras, and the Grand Loop Road would become gridlocked in both directions. There was no getting a patrol car or an ambulance through, and as one of his first administrative actions, Brady put in a request for a motorcycle. Vehicle fires, forest fires, lost children and pets, fistfights over parks, parking places or other imagined slights, spousal disputes, thefts, and the delivery of emergency messages to call home about the death of an aunt were part of the job. Brady's life was a strange juxtaposition of quiet, sage-scented moments watching elk and bison grazing slowly across the meadows and other moments that embodied the whole intense pageant of human existence from birth to sudden death. In June of 1970, he found himself stepping gingerly toward the edge of a pool of boiling hot water in the upper geyser basin with a rope around his waist, held by another ranger, and carrying a bucket of strong soap. A nine-year-old boy, walking through the geysers with his family, had stumbled off the boardwalk and, and fallen into the pool. His mother and father heard the splash and turned round to see him surface with a shocked expression, then sink and die. He was boiled until the meat fell off his bones. It has been known since the turn of the century, when it was done for the entertainment of tourists, that soaping the hot springs caused them to bubble more violently. This action caused what was left of the boy to rise to the surface, where Brady and his rangers skimmed about eight pounds of the remains for burial. With all of that, the second stage of Anderson and Cole's closure plan, and this, by the way, is the plan to close the dumps. The bears have been feeding at these dumps now for 80 years, and really pretty much it's not a problem. In other words, there's no people at the dumps. The bears show up there and eat the garbage, but uh, there's no actual um, conflicts really going on out there. But now, uh, Cole, who's the chief biologist at the park, and the superintendent will naturalize the park by making the park appear to be natural and closing the dumps. The problem is, is that, the, that behavior in higher animals is part of ecology, that an, an animal will behave, uh, an elk or a bear is a different elk or bear depending on what kind of behavior they have, and they, they function entirely differently, and that's what they're about to, f to find out with this closure. With all of that, the second stage of Anderson and Cole's closure plan made things twice as bad at Old Faithful that year. The bears displaced by food reductions at Trout Creek awoke that spring to find workers bulldozing dirt over Rabbit Creek and installing an electrified fence around a temporary landfill at Nez Perce Creek a couple of miles north. There were no power lines there, so a generator ran 24 hours a day and a maintenance worker was assigned to monitor it. Alone out there at night, he witnessed huge grizzlies getting sparked off the fence, and as Brady understood it, was so unnerved by the experience that he refused to go back. Meanwhile, in a cooperative effort with the state of Montana to keep grizzlies off garbage along Yellowstone's boundaries, the town dump at West Yellowstone was closed that summer. However, as Steven Zetterberg forced Starker Leopold to admit during his cross-examination at the trial, Bears did not respond by suddenly switching to an all-natural diet. Quote, June of 1970 was exactly two months long, Brady remembered. Brady and his rangers spent their days dealing with people and their nights dealing with grizzlies. Scattered in the pines on the south side of the village 
was housing for Park Service and concession employees. At night, grizzlies wandered the unlit gravel roads there, past the dormitories, houses, and trailers, looking for something to eat. So Brady and his rangers were setting culvert traps, tranquilizing the bears and relocating them. Around the 4th of July weekend in 1970, a trap was set right in front of, of Brady's trailer. One night, he was awakened by the sound of the steel gate clanging shut. Luckily, his wife and three little girls were up at Mammoth Hot Springs at the time. It was about two in the morning. He got up and looked out the front window to where the porch light cast a pool of light around the trap. Sure enough, it was sprung. Grizzlies mate between May and July, and Brady knew that around that time, if you trapped a female, there might be a male nearby. He got on the phone and woke up Mike Warren, a bear management ranger, and asked him to get his patrol car and drive through the housing area to see if there were any other grizzlies around. Warren dro drove around, spotlighting the woods, for about 15 minutes, then radioed an all-clear and pulled up in front of Brady's trailer. Brady came out to meet him, leaving the trailer door ajar as the screen door sprung shut. The two of them peered into the trap and saw a sow they'd handled below uh, before. Suddenly, Warren said, run. Both men sprinted for the safety of the trailer, dove underneath the porch railing, and tumbled right through the closed screen door, demolishing it. Brady slammed the trailer door behind them as a big male bear attacked the porch in frustration and went over the trap with a female inside and started banging on it with his paws. Brady got out a dart pistol, sat down at the kitchen table, and loaded a dart with enough sequestrin to put down a big bear or instantly kill a human being. His hands were shaking with the adrenaline. As he finished loading the pistol, he accidentally discharged it. The dart missed Warren and lodged in the ceiling. Brady loaded another, walked over to the door, cracked it open, and darted the big male with the first shot. The bear ran off into the darkness. Brady and Warren got into Warren's car and drove around the housing area looking for the bear. Time went by, enough for the animal to have been immobilized and then come to again. Finally, they saw a light on in a small travel trailer and heard a woman screaming. The bear was up against the side of the trailer, trying to turn it over. Brady darted it again. This time it went straight down. The two rangers went back to anesthetize the trapped female bear and towed the trap containing her over to the second bear. They woke up a couple of other rangers and tried to drag the big male into the trap, but he was too heavy. So they went and got a pickup with an electric winch, snaked the cable through the trap past the sow, winched the male in next to her, and slammed the gate. The six-year-old male had been transplanted twice before and was sent to a zoo. Brady isn't sure what happened to the sow. That is how it was at Old Faithful in the summer of 1970. Anderson and Cole had ordered dump closure to proceed, and Brady was determined to make it through the year without a serious bear incident at Old Faithful. He almost did. Or maybe he did. We may never know because amid the daily chaos and all the good deeds of the rangers that summer, key evidence thought to be fragmentary human remains was mishandled and lost, and although Jim Brady could not have known it, the old grizzly that would later kill Harry Walker passed through his hands. Frank Craighead learned about the macabre discovery along the Firehole River near Old Faithful Af, uh, over a month before it ha sorry, after it happened, when in the fall of 1970, he struck up a conversation at a store in West Yellowstone with a young man who turned out to be an off-duty seasonal ranger. This is now a testimony from the trial over the death of Harry Walker. Would you tell the court the conversation you had with Ranger Schroeder at that time, Zetterberg asked Craighead on the witness stand. Well, for the first time was the evening of October 10th, 1970, when I inadvertently started talking with Gerald B. Schroeder, seasonal ranger, responded Craighead. I then realized that he had more than average uh, knowledge about the situation at Yellowstone, so I asked him who he was, and he told me. Through him, 
I learned of the possible mortality at the camp along the Firehole River. At that point in the conversation, Frank testified, he removed a notebook from his breast pocket of his shirt and began taking notes as Schroeder continued his tale. He said that in the Old Faithful area in 1970, there was probably or possibly another human mortality, but this apparently had not been recorded or released to the public. Schroeder had told Craighead that an abandoned camp had been located, apparently torn up by a bear. Cans found there were mouthed and squashed, but not punctured. And Frank, I'm oh, sorry, said Frank. Sleeping gear had been dragged a considerable distance away from the camp, and a tuft of human hair had been found. There were indications that possibly a human had been killed at this camp, and no other evidence was apparently found. The camper never showed up, and the camp was removed by the rangers, Frank testified. Not long after that, he told the court, an old bear with broken teeth had been trapped at Old Faithful and flown 18 miles into the backcountry. Certainly, a bear moved that distance, only 18 miles away, in my experience, in transplanting them and tracking them by radio, would readily come back. So there's a good possibility that the bear that disturbed this camp could have been the bear that was in the Walker Boys camp, Craig had testified. This story actually came to me, as I said, in pieces uh, long before I discovered the trial transcripts. Um, in, when I was 26, I briefly, uh, uh, well, I was uh, writing my first magazine article and working outside my ranger cabin one day, and some bear uh, management people and bear researchers uh, had trapped a, a sow and a cub uh, and the trap was parked down near my cabin. I went down to see what they were doing, and I watched um, a man named Dr. David Graber uh, work the bears up and measure them and check them for ectoparasites, pull a fourth premolar to age the bear, um, uh, describe the distinctive blaze that the bears sometimes have on their chest, um, uh, and fit them with radio collars. These bears had been working the campground at Lodgepole, and uh, they'd been responsible for all kinds of mayhem. They then put these bears in the back of a truck and drove them to Red, uh, Red Fur Heliport and loaded them on a Hughes 500 helicopter and flew them into the backcountry to be released where they wouldn't uh, uh, be a problem for people and people wouldn't be a problem for them. I was dazzled. I got to say that at that time I was in the process of gathering my skills as a ranger. And this idea of taking these animals out of a situation where they were uh, causing trouble and moving them to some place where they could live a natural life really attracted me. And I thought, this is good work. So I put in for a, a bear uh, technician school. And, uh, and the following year, I began working briefly with bears and, you know, basically uh, doing what, what I'd seen them doing, trapping bears, tranquilizing them, uh, taking various uh, scientific data off them, and then fitting them with radio collars and moving them to places where they wouldn't be a problem. Well, um, years later, when I was uh, casting around for a writing project, I thought it would be a good idea to go back and see what happened to every bear that I ever worked on. It was 17 years later, and the, the records of all the, the bears that I had worked on were still in existence. And as I began to go through them, I found the most remarkable and shocking thing. Every bear that we ever touched, every bear we ever worked on, came to a bad end um, very soon. Um, we hadn't saved anybody. We weren't doing anything um, other than putting off the inevitable invention of the locker that you now see um, or the inevitable installation of the locker that you now see in every campground. Moving bears around doesn't work. It didn't work for us. It, it didn't work at Yellowstone. And, um, and so I, I, the shock of this made me want to pursue it more and find out more about it. And I went back to this Dr. David Graber I had seen that first day, who was now the chief scientist for the Pacific West region of the National Park Service, and uh, began asking them about the whole activity. And through this, uh, learned that he had been the student of uh, Starker Leopold, the son of Aldo Leopold, who becomes a major character in this book. So I interviewed him more about Starker Leopold, and, uh, and in the process of this interview, he had said that uh, 
he sort of had gotten his job with the Park Service because of a scandal at Yosemite involving the discovery of 20 dead bears at the bottom of a cliff. Things had gotten so bad in the campgrounds at Yosemite that the rangers were killing bears and throwing them over a cliff on the way up the Crane Flat Road. And a rock climber by the name of Galen Rowell uh, discovered the 22 uh, corpses of bears and uh, had a press conference. This resulted in a scandal. Graeber also told me that at the time there were a bunch of people from Yellowstone uh, who had fled Yellowstone and come to Yosemite after some kind of lawsuit. Um, I didn't hear another thing about that lawsuit for years until 2009 when I discovered this, these old files at Yellowstone, and the case kind of came together for me. Um, this story is really about um, how much do we believe our own assumptions about nature and in, in charting the story from the beginning of Yellowstone, we see layers and layers of these assumptions as uh, ecology changes its ideas. First, ecology through much of the 20th century was a highly organized and interdependent, laced together uh, system. And then suddenly later on, uh, somebody decides that it's all very random and patchy, and it isn't as uh, interdependent as we thought it was. And each time, uh, in, in the actual operation of, of parks, somebody changes something based on a theory. So this uh, book, Engineering Eden, is about the way in which the cost of thinking we know about nature. Um, I'm curious whether anybody uh, ever had any experience with a grizzly here. Did, did you ever, did anybody ever visit, have you? That's about as close as you want to be to a bear. The gentleman says that I'm, we're on the we have uh, KUOW with us, but uh, gentleman says that uh, he actually was close enough to have a, 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 a clawed paw of a bear. Right? Yeah. And this relationship with food, with human food, ended up being a huge behavior modification program uh, that was done inadvertently by human beings. And so in the time that I became a ranger, we were doing all these things to the bears to try to get the bears to behave right. And what really needed doing was uh, to separate bears absolutely from sources of human food. Uh, interestingly enough, that you'll, you'll find in the book that this Dr. David Graeber, who appears later in the book, actually invented the food locker at Yosemite, it's now in every campground, and uh, with, the, um, uh, with the canisters that backpackers carry now, it has utterly changed the relationship between bears and human beings um, everywhere that, that these things are being used. And all the things that we were doing to the bears themselves didn't really make any difference. Bears have an amazing ability to navigate. Uh, you can... Uh, uh, anesthetize them with powerful veterinary drugs, put them in a helicopter, fly them into the backcountry, and somehow when they wake up, they know the way home. Uh, back to, they often get back. When we were using the traps that we towed behind vehicles, uh, they often got back before we had a chance to tow the trap back. <laughs> Anybody else had an experience with a bear? in, uh, in uh, Yosemite was a, 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 a terrible place in the 1970s. Um, there were literally bear incidents constantly every day. And uh, in the mid-'70s, quite a few injuries, actually, from black bears, which very seldom happen anymore. Um, I'd, like to, uh, uh, I'd like to have time to, uh, to talk with you when I'm signing books also. Um, Do anybody have any questions about what I've said? Uh, I, I think... I think what I've written this book about is, uh, I, I meant this book to be, let me say something about this, uh, the form of this book, because uh, I think the press has commented on it. Um, Engineering Eden was built uh, in, in its form to resemble ecology. Um, I had the idea that I wanted to write a book about uh, the complex relations between people and places and nature. 
uh, and the way that they are um, incredibly interdependent, the way that ecology appears to be. Uh, there is, um, as I say, there are two bodies of thought about ecology in this regard. One is that everything is random and patchy, and the other is that, uh, that nature is incredibly interdependent and it co-evolves. Individual organi- organisms co-evolve together to become a, a fabric, like uh, in the... In the um, Sanskrit tradition, Indra's net, the idea of the infinite interrelationship, you know. um, And this is also in the Western tradition. Herman Melville says, uh, we cannot live only for ourselves. Uh, A thousand fibers connect us with our fellow men. And among those fibers, as sympathetic threads, our actions run as causes, and they come back to us as effects. Um, So I built the book to be a model not only of a story, which it is, and the way that uh, science happens, which is constantly with sci- scientists arguing with each other and, and their interrelationships, uh, but also as a model of, uh, of ecology itself. Uh, you'll find that the stories in this book, which are all true, somehow all relate to each other, and the characters somehow uh, have uh, met each other in, or been altered have their lives altered in surprising ways. Um, you know, Martin Luther King said, um, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one destiny affects all indirectly. So the book was built, uh, when you read the book, if you read the book, you'll find that it's, uh, and I didn't make these things up, but you just, if you begin looking at them, you'll find that that's the way life is actually con- constructed. Your life is constructed in this way. You are related to people. Certain people did something or said something at a certain time in your life that changed everything for you. Um, you did something that changed everything for someone else. And that's the way this story was connected. Well, I'll repeat that question for the listeners of KUOW, and you tell me if I got it right or correct me. You, you're asking me whether I feel like I was able to make a contribution in, in my work as a ranger, and you wanted me to talk a little bit about the difference between this park service that I'm describing during this key moment of this trial, uh, the trial about the death of Harry Walker and the struggle between John and Frank Craighead in the Park Service, which results in them getting ejected from Yellowstone, and, um, and now, and the Park Service now. Um, the, um, first que- the, the answer to the first question is yes. Um, I, by the time I was 15, I understood myself to have been born into a massive catastrophe um, on the scale of something beyond anything that had happened for thousands of years. Um, I saw around me what is turning out to be the sixth major extinction, this one caused by um, human beings. And uh, by uh, uh, 1986 and 87, reading, I began reading seriously about climate change. Uh, and so my work as a ranger and my work as a writer have always related to a question how does one live in a time like this and not regret what one was doing? How can you live morally and ethically in a time like this and still enjoy your life and have a good life, but make it somehow matter? And for me, being a ranger very much did that. Um, we certainly did a lot of things wrong, uh, but we did a lot of things right, and we... Uh, and we were doing something that I still, to this day, am obsessed with. I mean, to me, these protected areas, um, places like Yellowstone, which have been in, in our hands now for a pretty long time, uh, are the most remarkable uh, outcome of a civilization, uh, the fundamental drive of which is to, is to massively alter everything else that it touches. So... I think of these uh, places as our pyramids. You know, the great monuments of our civilization are the things that we left alone a little bit, right? I mean, if, 
Those would be the things that somebody later would say, wow, look at that. At least they had some intelligence to try to leave something the way it was a little bit or to maintain it in that state. So thank you. Yes. The second part, um, what I'm describing in this book is, uh, is a moment when the Park Service is trying to come into modern times to, to begin managing uh, nature based on science. And it's a struggle. Uh, um, and, you know, it's, it's largely sort of where we are with the larger world right now. One of the things I notice about a national park is it's sort of like a model of the larger world. Um, we face the same issues in the larger world. Um, and right now we are on the threshold of, um, of hopefully trying to manage ourselves in the larger world with some sensibility about the science. That's what they were doing. Today's Park Service, I think, uh, a lot of these problems have been solved. You know, um, there was a study uh, uh, from t- 2007 to 2013 of causes of death in the national park system, uh, human death. There were four people during that time uh, killed by, by grizzlies. Um, and, you know, uh, 386 or so uh, died in drownings, uh, 212 in car accidents. Um, so there are really very few conflicts between uh, bears and people when you consider how many people are passing through these places. Four, over 4 million a year in, 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 in Yellowstone now. And they're free to walk wherever they want. It's the most amazing system we have in America. Uh, in, in Africa, you're required to stay in the Land Rover, and they drive you around and look at lions. In America, you can take your backpack, get out of your car, and just walk into the middle of grizzly country. It's a very strange system. Uh, at Yellowstone, by the way, the, one, the, the animal that's causing more, uh, more injuries is, is bison because they look like big, docile, slow-moving cows. They're not very slow-moving when they get mad. Um, and uh, there were five injuries uh, uh, last year alone in 2015. Not fatal, but, you know, five injuries from, from bison. So I think the, the Park Service has faced a lot of these things now. Um, what the Park Service doesn't know is what we don't know, which is what do we do uh, as the world changes? How do we support the process during climate change? The biologists I'm talking to have decided that what you do is you try to keep as diverse a system as possible. You try to make sure that every last animal that you've got lives, that you try to keep the species there. Aldo Leopold said that the first law of of tinkering is save the pieces. When you take an alarm clock apart, don't throw away the pieces. So that's the way that they're functioning. But in a larger sense, they don't know what to do about what's happening. It's bigger and different, and uh, so they're really managing based on saving what you can and keeping a full complement of species. Does that answer your question? I think they're doing a lot better than they were in this book, but the book is representative of what we are now facing in the larger world. That's why I wrote it. Well, there was a very serious uh, conflict here over science, and, um, uh, and this has happened not just in Yellowstone, but in other places too, where somebody gets dead set about a theory of science and, uh, uh, and it gets nasty with other researchers. So I think it's very important that we maintain a science, an open source science environment. And the Obama administration has been working on this. Um, I recently uh, talked at some length with uh, uh, the President Obama's uh, 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 aid from the Office of Technology Assessment, and one of their projects is open science. Make sure that whatever the government pays for is available to everybody and that we uh, don't um, try to manipulate politics by changing the conclusions of uh, agencies like the Fish and Wildlife Service, which was done a lot in previous administrations. Oh, we can't really say that. We'd like you to tone that down about that extinction. Um, it's really going to get in the way of a logging project if we put it that succinctly. So I want you to soften that briefing paper. 
That was done a lot. So I think it's really important that what's happening in this book is, I mean, the Craigheads had their laboratory pushed down by a Park Service bulldozer. Um, they were, uh, they had the, you know, the radio collars cut off their bears, and they were eventually forbidden to work in, in Yellowstone because they disagreed about these fundamental issues about how to manage uh, bears that had been altered, had their behavior altered. The Craigheads were realists and said these bears are not going to become natural bears if you push earth over the dumps. It's much more complicated than that. Uh, and they also said elk that don't have wolves will not control their own population. And the chief biologist believed that also. He believed that uh, at that time that if you took out the wolves, there was other mysterious factors that would uh, nature would somehow control elk. Uh, the Craigheads said... Their point of view was once you have pushed things out of whack, you may have to push them back to whack. And you, you can't create a condition of naturalness merely by not touching something because you're still touching it with everything else, including climate change. Thank you. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, anybody else? Well, I'm, I'm happy to talk with you at length while I'm signing books, and thank you for your time and attention um, I'm curious what you think about longer readings. I don't do these normally. Uh, do you think that's a good idea when I read? Uh, you know, it's like an audio book a bit. Is it good for audiences? Is it something that you like hearing? Yeah? I generally try to avoid it because I think that audiences want me to more talk about the book. This is probably the longest reading I've ever given from this book. Please. Well, I think a lot of people have said that. Um, the gentleman says that, uh, you know, he's grateful for the, the, the chapter, Firehole chapter that I read, uh, because it shows the complexity of these relations between characters, which he, having read the book, is still trying to work out. Mea culpa, my friend. I, I, um, I, did, I did build the book as a model of ecology, these interrelationships, and also of my own experience of life. We are not living as as singular individuals. We are living in uh, complex relationship with others in the workplace, at home, you know, and, uh, and in spiritual ways. We're constantly being influenced by the actions of others. And so I built this book as a... Uh, I didn't make this up. I just told the story the way it was in the papers. I t it took years to research this. When somebody opens their mouth and says something, it was written down someplace. I didn't make this stuff up. Yes, sir. That's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that question. That is the most agonizing thing. And uh, uh, thank you. The question that the gentleman asked is uh, he wants to know what you want, really wanted to put in the book that couldn't get in the book and what he had to cut out. Um, the answer is lots of stuff. But, uh, you know, the, there is a, a sort of, for me, almost sort of sacred relationship between the writer and the editor. And uh, I am one of those writers who uh, I'm having a pretty good run. I'm working, you know, uh, but I don't have an MFA. And the people who've taught me to write, other than my mentors, uh, fellow writers, really have been the editors. And uh, editors sometimes tell you, you know, you, you, uh, there's that expression, to kill your darlings. And uh, there were some that I held on to for so long, you know, don't kill it. Please don't. I love that part. And uh, uh, I think probably uh, I would say more about characters. You know, when, when uh, I have to shorten a story about a character. For example, I'll tell, I'll tell you uh, that something was in a draft of the book was the Stoneman Meadow Riot. Does anybody know what that was? Uh, it was a full-scale riot in Yosemite uh, uh, in 1970, it began with an, a sort of freeform encampment of young people after, after the first Earth Day and turned into a full-on riot with turning over patrol cars and setting them on fire and, um, and you know, arrests and, uh, you know, massive uh, busloads of people being processed uh, uh, after arrest and so on. And, uh, and this was the reason that this Jim Brady, who you've just met, uh, later turns up in Yosemite. He's the Park Service's solution to the Stoneman Meadow riot. 
Uh, and it made sense because I like this character, Brady. Uh, why he went to Yosemite after Yellowstone wasn't just fleeing the Walker lawsuit, but he actually uh, was selected, uh, it was quite an honor, to be this new breed of ranger that wouldn't uh, incite this kind of behavior from young people. They, they wanted the rangers to be better talkers, to, to discuss with people, to have more sympathy for what young people's concerns were, and Brady gets moved to Yosemite. So I just love the story about the riot, and it's so colorful. I mean, um, and I did a lot of research about the riot, and my editor kept saying, the riot's got to go. <laughs> you know? and, and it was a terrible thing. I mean, I loved the riot, and in the end, the riot isn't in the book. Uh, what else? Um, uh, you know, that, that's the thing that comes to mind the most, uh, is I just really hated losing the riot. But, but my editor quite rightly said, you know, this book is about, it's about ecology and it's about um, the natural sciences. It's really not about rioting. So I hated to lose it. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Another great question. The gentleman is asked uh, um, if, uh, having come into this story when I did, if I caught human stories that would have been gone shortly thereafter. I mean, uh, there are, I should say, a number of bear maulings in some detail in this book. I didn't read you. Other audiences have had to sit through them. And I had one, I, I had one, one, um, audience in Corte Madera at the wonderful Book Passage bookstore in Corte Madera, California, when midway through the mauling, a woman began retching in the third row. Uh, like that. And just, it was really a profound discomfort for her. So I, but, um, you know, I, I guess uh, I lost uh, a participant and witness or victim in, in one of these maulings to cancer. Uh, I lost uh, one of the key ranger sources to, uh, to a head injury, uh, not a fatal head injury, but uh, a considerable disability. Uh, I, lost, um, I lost the only man who was present at the time Harry Walker died to cancer. Uh, I went, he was actually very, very tough to track down to begin with. Uh, Harry, when Harry left home hitchhiking and ended up at Yellowstone, he had left home with a friend from high school. And um, his friend Philip uh, had been present the night Harry died and watched it, you know, said, was there. He never got over it. And uh, by the time I began trying to find Philip, he was a homeless alcoholic. And uh, so I spent over a year trying to track him down to talk to him. He's the only man who witnessed Harry's death. Uh, and I eventually uh, hired a private investigator to help me find him in Alabama. That man began looking for his uh, booking sheets and jail commitments and stuff. And we spent months, you know, following him around as he was arrested here, arrested there, those things, uh, that paperwork was kind of like the dry leaves on your porch after a, a nighttime wind, you know, that you come out in the morning and you find the leaves all over the place, but by that time the wind's in the next county. Uh, so I, I pursued Philip for a long time, and eventually I found him, I found one of his sister's old addresses I asked there and eventually tracked down his sister, and, uh, and uh, one night... Uh, I went to his place in an Appalachian mill town. I called the private investigator to say, you know, I found Philip. I'm going up to see him. And he said, where is he? I told him the name of this destitute mill town in the Appalachians. And he said, are you armed? And I said, I said, no. I mean, I didn't bring my gun from California. I have a CCW because I'm a retired law enforcement officer, but I didn't bring it. He said, too bad. And I said, why? He said, you know what that place is famous for? And, and I said, no. And he said, people like Philip. Uh, so actually, I went, I went to the uh, farm supply and I bought a camo baseball cap. And I went up there and knocked on the door. And when I went inside, everybody inside was wearing camo. And they were all immediately my friends. They offered me beers. And, and uh, Philip was 
very forthcoming with, you know, what had happened that night. And within uh, a matter of, of another year, I'd lost him to cancer. So, yeah, the answer is I got to this story uh, just in time. Uh, quite a few sources are gone now. Thanks for the question. I'm sorry, what is it about the what? About bears. Yeah, you mean what, that, that essentially very few people are dying from bear attacks. Well, you know, that's a really another great question. Um, you know, we are, a friend of mine says, we're hardwired for the Paleolithic, that we uh, spent, you know, a million years, uh, well, we spent at least 80,000 years huddled around campfires looking over our shoulders uh, and in, in the presence of things much bigger than grizzlies, like, you know, cave bears, smilodons, um, really big carnivores. And um, so we, we fear bears more than French fries, but the, the truth is we really ought to fear the French fries. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, I think the answer to your question is that these animals will, are adapted to hunt uh, animals that are easy for them to kill without a lot of threat, they faced us too. We uh, killed some of them. Uh, it it looks like one you know plausible theory is the the loss of all these genera of uh, large mammals at the end of the uh, last ice age was related to human hunters. That's one fairly plausible and longstanding theory since at least 1963, the overkill hypothesis. So uh, we might not be the, the first thing that they would be seeking for prey. They certainly don't. There are cougars all the way from Southern California up into British Columbia. They've had some trouble with them in British Columbia, but by and large in California, Oregon, and, and Washington, they're not resulting in uh, but, a, but a handful of, of uh, very unusual human conflicts. They're just not after us, you know? They don't go out in the morning saying, I think I'll kill a human. They say, I think I'll go get a jackrabbit and then dig around for some roots or a ground squirrel, you know. Um, and so I think that's why. They're just not out to get us. And we have an ancient, deep-seated fear of them. Anybody else? And then I'll go back, and we can talk back there, and I'll sign your book if you want. Thank you so much for coming, and thanks to the... Uh, Thanks also to the listeners of KUOW at the University of Washington, and uh, I appreciate you spending the evening with me. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Jordan Fisher-Smith spoke at the Elliott Bay Book Company on August 17th. Tune in again soon.